Please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, the second chapter. Tonight we will go back and have our concluding sermon on secret sins. But I'm shifting that to the evening and going to Acts 2 in the morning because, as you know, we have made a commitment as a church to uh, become more uh, aware of one another and to be more intimate in our congregational life by starting home groups, house groups, small groups, whatever you want to call them. And in thinking about this, it appeared to me that it was good to go back and to remind ourselves of what the nature of the church is. Now, last night I called one of the students of this church who has now gone off to another city to study. And I wanted to encourage this young man to immediately make a commitment that he was going to be in church every Sunday. And I want to make the same commitment to those of you, and I'll put my glasses on so I can see you, um, who are now starting out in a new city and a new uh, enterprise, namely studying. I want to encourage you at the very beginning, make a commitment that you will not neglect the house of God. It would be a real twisted thing if you were all faithful in paying tuition at IU and uh, getting your syllabus and doing all your studies and everything. And, and then when it came Sunday, after doing all the homework for the things that are only going to profit you in this life, on Sunday, you, you, you had no place to go. You didn't bother honoring the Lord. And I want to make the case this morning that um, the first priority has to go to the Lord in your life and to the church. Now, when I say church, I don't mean a parachurch group. I don't mean crusade or university, even though my father gave 25 years of his life to going around on campuses and teaching uh, scripture through university. Um, but university is not a church, all right? No matter how much we appreciate the work these parachurch groups do, um, a church is a place where the people gather together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and at the center of worship is always the preaching of God's Word, not just the sharing together, uh, but the preaching of God's Word and the sacraments. And one thing you'll notice is none of these parachurch groups have the sacraments. And consequently, they don't have church discipline. And to be a part of a church, you have to be capable of having somebody say God's no to you as well as God's yes. Now, that is true and. In university Bible study, it might be that somebody will look at you and say no. Um, and that's good. But the no of somebody in a Bible study is very different from the no of an older woman who comes to you and talks to you about uh, some dating issue in your life or an older man who comes to you and says that he, he doesn't think you're honoring the Lord in this place or that place. In other words, a church is a place where you have the sacraments where you have the preaching of God's Word, where you have the ability of being disciplined, and where you live together as a family, where you have older people and younger people, where you can see children again. How boring to be in a place where you never see kids, eh? Um, so I encourage you, make a commitment that you may go to InterVarsity, but you will go to church. No problem against going to the parachurch groups, but make the church of Jesus Christ your commitment. Now, why would I be so bold as to say this? Well, um, look at Acts 2. Here we have uh, an, an intersection, uh, of a crossroads, a roundabout. 
We have a place where a bunch of important things come together. And what are the things that come together in this text? Well, here we have the end of the Gospels, the stories of Jesus Christ, and the beginning of the church. Now, as you keep going forward, you might have noticed we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 today, the reason we're doing that is we want to have books read in our worship. So we're reading through 2 Corinthians. We're on chapter 7. Next week we'll be on chapter 8. But 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and all these, these are epistles. These are specific doctrinal letters written to the church that teach them truth and apply it to their lives. The Gospels give us the account of Jesus Christ, his life and his death, his birth, life, and death. The book of Acts is this book that's in between the Gospels and in between the epistles where it shows the creation, the founding of the church. Now, if the book of Acts is a crossroads, then this text that we're going to look at this morning is the crossroads of the crossroads. Because here you see the planting of the first Christian church. Now, you can talk in the Old Testament about Zion, and when you talk about Zion and you read the Psalms referring to Zion and those born in Zion, you know that it's referring to uh, the church in the Old Testament. It's called Zion, it's called Jerusalem, it's called many, many different things in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the church is built directly and explicitly on Jesus Christ. And you have at the center of history the cross of Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament church points forward to the cross. The New Testament church points back to the cross. And the beginning of the time when it points back to the cross is right here in the book of Acts and right here in Acts 2. And the church begins with the disciples receiving power on the day of Pentecost. And out of that comes the Apostle Peter preaching in great power the tongues of fire, and then this, this radical sermon where the very people who just got done crucifying Jesus Christ and trying to cover up his resurrection have him proclaim to them as the King of kings and the Lord of lords as the hope of all nations. Think of how radical that was. And more radical even than the preaching was the fact that they, some of them, the very people who crucified Jesus, that they believed. That they believed. In other words, that they repented and believed. And out of that came the first church. Now, let me ask you, as we go to this account of the founding of the church, what do you think would be true of their life? Uh, if you were an Old Testament Jew and you were coming into the period of time when you made the transition from looking forward through all the the blood and the guts of sacrificial system and through all the observance of the ceremonial law and through all of the, um, the prophets and their pointing forward, Isaiah 53, all of a sudden you saw yourself, you saw Christ as he was, you repented in your involvement or your silence in his crucifixion and now you declared him King of kings and Lord of lords and, and his death, your covering for your sin, your hope of salvation you all of a sudden would be aware that you had done an about-face. You're going along, you're looking forward to the Messiah, and all of a sudden the Messiah is proclaimed to you, and you look back and you go, I get it, and you repent and you believe. Now, you then have a trip to make, and the trip is this sojourn, this life. What would be true of that life? What would you do? 
Uh, would you go back and begin to kill lambs again? Would you go back to Isaiah 53 and, and, and read it over and over again? Well, yes, you probably would because it would gain more and more meaning. But you would not go back and begin to worship in the way that pointed forward to Christ, but now you would what? Jesus said that we were to eat and drink in remembrance of Him. And so you say, oh, I get it. The Passover that pointed forward to Christ is now the Lord's Supper that points back to Christ. And so you'd start celebrating the Lord's Supper. And we do this every two weeks. We probably should do it every week, but we've gotten it to every two weeks. And we do it because the Lord commanded it. And then you'd look back and you'd say, now what else should my worship be? And you'd look back and you'd say, now when you came into the covenant, you were marked. You were marked by the sign of circumcision. But Jesus said that we are to baptize the disciples. I get it. Baptism now has replaced circumcision. And so you would be baptized. And you would baptize those who come into the church who repent and believe. All right? Now, what else would you do? Well, let's look. Acts 2. We're going to read verses... Um, I'm going to start with verse 37 this week, okay? Uh, look at, well, let me start with verse 36. I hate not to read the whole sermon, but that's how sermons get to be an hour and a half. Verse 36. Therefore, this is the end of the sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, you guys, I, I can't read that verse without making comments. I'm afraid that I am a pastor who lives in the real world. And so I don't skip over things that are embarrassing. Now, what would be embarrassing about that verse? Do you have any idea? What's embarrassing about that verse? Now, I know not one of you have ever read any of the articles that are going all over the Internet about Mel Gibson, right? You, you just haven't even seen them, have you? Have any of you seen the articles about Gibson's new film? Huh? Huh? Oh, okay. What's embarrassing about that verse? It is so sad to see evangelicals falling all over themselves to assure them, the, the world, that we're not anti-Semitic and to deny that it was the nation of Israel that killed Jesus. I read last night, I don't remember where, but I was checking my email, and, oh yeah, it was on uh, Google's news site. And there's this prominent article about how uh, a Southern Baptist pastor is assuring the country that Jesus Christ was not crucified by the Jews, but by whom? The Jewish leaders. Now, let me ask you something. Is that what this verse says? It doesn't say it. Look at the verse. The verse says what? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, who's you? It's not just the leaders. How do you know that? Well, you know that partly because we're going to read in a second that 3,000 people repented and believed that day. Now, do you think anybody who says it's just the leaders that crucified Jesus is going to tell you that there were 3,000 of them there that day who repented and believed? 
And what about those who didn't repent and believe? Okay? Were they leaders too? So if maybe you had a harvest ratio of, say, 50%, then that means, what, 6,000 were listening? And so there are 6,000? And if all of Jerusalem at that time only had 50 to 60,000 inhabitants, a tenth of the people were there. And so a tenth of Jerusalem could call themselves leaders. Now, it sounds like America, but not like Jerusalem. <laughs> okay? I mean, look, trust the Bible, guys. Trust the Bible. If we want to repent of the anti-Semitism that has been throughout the Christian church through the ages, the way to repent is not by lying about the historical record. Okay? The truth is the leaders took leadership, which leaders normally do. And the truth is the people followed them. And the truth is you can't just blame the leaders. You also blame the people. And the truth is that this verse blames the people. And so for us to try to get everybody to like us by saying it was just the Jewish leaders, and in fact many of the new evangelical Bible translations where the Greek says Jews, they're putting in the words Jewish leaders. There's no word leaders in the Greek that they're putting it in because this appeases our culture. All right? God does not need our help. Well, I shouldn't say that. Well, yes, I will say that. God, God does not need our help. God chooses to use us. But God certainly never is honored by people who will lie about the meaning and the text of his word. Do you understand that? Be women. <laughs> Be men in your, in your religion, you know? Don't, don't be namby-pamby. The world doesn't need one more namby-pamby person. The world needs people who will honor the Word of God. Okay? And pray that Mill Gibson doesn't give in on this thing. Okay? I could go on at length about that, but look at this verse. Look at it. Look at it. This is God's Word. It's inspired. It says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were what? Pierced to the heart. True religion is not just a flighty, velveteen, rabbit, warm, gushing feel that gives you chills on your spine. They didn't have chills on their spine that were warm feelings. They had chills in their spine that pierced them. I thought it was interesting in, 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 uh, in the text that we read earlier today. Look at 2 Corinthians 7. I had not noticed this. But if you'll flip over to what we read earlier as our scripture lesson. And you see there that he talks about Titus. And he's very pleased that Titus was refreshed by them all. Verse 13, Titus, his spirit has been refreshed by you all. And then skip down to 15. His, Titus' affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with what? Fear and trembling. Isn't that strange? Have you ever written somebody and said how, how, how happy you are because you received them with fear and trembling or they received someone with fear and trembling? And yet, when, when the Word of God comes through someone, piercing to the heart, fear and trembling and obedience are the true fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so, if you go into a church and you're under the preaching of the Word and it causes your heart to tremble, this is a good thing. This isn't a bad thing. You go to a concert to exalt. 
And sometimes we exalt in worship. But when it comes to the Word of God, it's never a negative that we fear and tremble. It's never a negative that we're cut to the heart and that we are pierced. Then it says, verse 37, they said, Brethren, what shall we do? A natural response to the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Word. And Peter said to them, what? Repent. Little word, isn't it? Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what? Repent and be baptized. Okay? For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. It's not enough to say be saved, is it? It's very important that we tell people what they're to be saved from. And that means we have to open up to them the nature of this perverse generation we live in. We can't save them from something that they don't feel they're in any danger of. And so if you're going to be a witness on campus, you're going to have to say be saved, which is a real warm, gushy thing. But you're going to have to say from this perverse generation. And that's not warm and gushy. That's a hard message to give. Because you can't just say this perverse. What do you mean perverse? Are you talking about homosexual? No. I'm saying perverse generation. Well, what do you mean perverse? Are you talking about drugs? No. Well, what do you mean? All of the above. I'm talking about the advertisements on television. And I'm talking about, you know, and then you begin to open up to them how this culture, everything we suck in, is perverse and is opposed in principle to God. The pride of, of, of learning on the campus is often in opposition to God, okay? And so you open that up to them and then you say believe. And, and then when they come to the gospel, they don't just believe. It says they repent and believe. You see? You explained that it was perverse and so they repent. And then you pointed them to Christ and they believe. That's the gospel. Now watch what happens here. So then those who had received his word were baptized. Again, this baptism. Okay? And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from what? House to house. So day by day, they gathered as one and day by day, they scattered in the homes and ate. Day by day, all right. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. I hope many of you who are here for the first time will be invited home for dinner today. And I hope that those of you who are, have been here permanently will have somebody home. I hope most Sundays you have people home for lunch. Why? Because the Bible presents this as a standard. Because this is what we ought to be doing. It's very sweet to go home and to be able to immediately have rapport with one another because we are humble under the cross. And so we love each other. We're brothers and sisters even though we haven't met. 
I have complete freedom to preach to you this morning if you're a believer. And you give me complete freedom to say the most intense things to you because we're under Jesus Christ. And so we have freedom with each other. It's a beautiful thing. And then it says what? With gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, remember how I said the book of Acts is a crossroads. And in the book of Acts, this text is a crossroads. Now you understand why. Because you have the end of the sermon, and then you have 3,000 souls being saved, believing. And then you have a very concise description of what their community life was like. And that's the church. It's their life as a community. Now I want to look at verse 40. Uh, I want to look at verse 42 for the next few weeks. And say... At the very center of this new church, what were they devoted to? Now, you could rightly say that they were devoted to being baptized and to repenting and believing, and that's true. The entry to the church is repentance and faith and then baptism. But once that happens, what does it say they're devoted to? Uh, Often we talk about the devotion of a dog to a man. I think in, in all of publishing the themes that have the most books written about them are dogs and the Civil War. I mean, it's something like that. Everybody likes a dog story, right? And we tend to look at dogs as sort of a a metaphor of our existence. We're willing to love them and to be loved by them. We're willing to put up with them doing some very, very obnoxious things. Um, This is why we don't yet have a dog in our house. Um, but a dog, regardless of what you say, a dog is devoted to its master. And something that we all exclaim over is the devotion of a dog to a master who's cruel to that dog. Unbelievable that that dog can continue to be devoted to its master. Now, if I were to talk to you about soccer, I'm learning about the devotion of the world of soccer because Mary Lee and I have Taylor playing soccer more than any child of ours has ever been involved in sports. And so my eyes are being open to the world of soccer. And let me tell you, it's a world. It is a world. Uh, it has all the little things that signal other people that that's your world little stickers that you can put on your car and, and little names you can throw around and, and uh, you can go to IU soccer games and you can spend all your time. Today they're having a jamboree and Taylor is not able to play with his team because it's the Lord's Day and he doesn't do that. It's a world. It's a world that will suck you right out of the church if you let it. Now think about basketball. Think about the viola. Aha, I didn't say the violin. <laughs> think about music and it is a world it's a world where when people come into your room immediately they'll have you tagged as to what period you like and what your tastes are and by that they'll know the kind of woman or man you are right it's like books for pastors it's a world in other words all of us have our devotions right huh? we all have our devotions your devotion might be simply quilting But you have things that you're devoted to. Now, what was the early church devoted to? Notice four things, okay? The teaching of the apostles, fellowship, 
the breaking of bread, and prayer. Now we're going to start at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. Okay, and the very beginning of their devotions is what? The teaching of the apostles. Now, that's put in a way that keeps us from really knowing what it is. None of us go around and say, you know, are you devoted to the teaching of the apostles? You know, none of us even say the word apostles. You know, unless we're going up to camp in Lake Superior. That's about the extent of our use of the word apostles today. So, what was the teaching of the apostles? If the early church was devoted to the teaching of the apostles, what does that mean for us? Well, what that means for us is that... All right, are you ready for this? It means that doctrine is the first devotion of the church. Notice it doesn't say they were devoted to prayer and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the teaching of the apostles. It says... They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, nobody likes comparisons. Comparisons are odious, all right? They stink. And nobody wants us to compare four good things and to give a priority to one of them. But I'm going to do that. Because I believe that the teaching of the apostles comes at the beginning for a very specific reason. Now, if you want to know the truth, the reason I'm preaching this series is I want you to see fellowship in the context of these four devotions, and I want to lift up the importance of fellowship in the life of this church, and I want to downplay, relatively speaking, the importance of doctrine in this church. All right? So why am I starting by saying doctrine has first place? Wait until next week, and you'll see what I mean about fellowship. I want to give honor to the beginning. And the beginning is the apostles' teaching. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what does this mean? Well, would you please notice with me verse 41 again. Look at verse 41. And what does it say in verse 41? It says, those what? Those who had received his word. Those who had accepted Peter's message were baptized. And so what do we see? We see these 3,000 people have unity. Because why? Because they have heard the doctrinal proclamation of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And they have intellectually and in their heart No dichotomy between the mind and the heart. Together, the mind and the heart, they have believed in that message. And that message was communicated with words. Now, a little aside. It's very popular today to have the apostles' teaching fed to us through something other than words. We don't like words today. If you want to read a book that's had a major impact on me and many people who have the job of preaching, read the book Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. It's a fantastic book that shows how America has turned away from her heritage, which is a word-based culture, to an image and sound-based culture. As I was preparing to come over this morning, I was listening to Michael Card. And all of a sudden it hit me That despite the fact I'm prepared to argue that Michael Card is a godly man who does good work, 
Isn't it interesting that in the past, when we as Christians wanted to assemble together in a large group, in a larger group than our local churches, how would we do that? How would we do it? You know how we'd do it? We'd do it by going to preaching times. We'd go in the summer to a camp and there would be preaching. The Great Awakening, we'd travel to hear Whitfield or to hear Edwards. But today we don't do that anymore. Well, yes, sometimes we go to hear lectures. Because I think it would be hard to call most of the conferences that are held today sermons. They're lectures. All right? You know what we do, though, go to? We do go to hear musicians. You know why? Because you have changed from a word-based culture to an auditory and to a visual culture. Now, do you think that's more rigorous? <laughs> do you think you've become stronger? Do you think your children, as they make that transition even more than you have, do you think they'll be stronger for that transition? No. I mean, you want to argue afterwards, let's have an argument. But there's no way. The Bible has always been a word-based book, right? I mean, it's a book, right? Okay? And the Bible has always called us to give ourselves to the Word. Alright? In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And you watch how Scripture opens up to you the themes of God's truth. And it opens them up through words. Even the parables, which are beautiful stories, were stories composed of words. And they had word-based points, okay? You cannot be a biblical Christian and give up literacy. You cannot go into a nation to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ and not bring literacy. That's why Christianity has always been the principal force for literacy in the world. And before that, Judaism. They are people of the book, all right? And so we cannot turn our noses up at words. And I ask you, Think about the degree to which you would prefer sounds and sights to words. Think about the fact that you'd prefer going to a concert and getting a rush than you would to go to the preaching of the Word and getting trembling and fear and repentance. And then ask yourself, is that because God has changed the way He's working or is it because Satan is very sophisticated now, am I against music? I'm not against music. But music has to be a servant, not a master. Okay? And those of you in the music school better learn this. You have to learn this. Music is not the master. The master is Jesus Christ. And the master of the church starts with the preaching of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles, the doctrine of the apostles. And there ain't no way that you can get doctrine without words. You can't do it. Okay? So ask yourself, is this an area where you need to recommit yourself to Scripture? Do you need to recommit yourself to literacy, to knowledge, to words, to arguments, to reasoning, to logic? This last week I was talking to Joseph, my, our son, um, who's a senior down at Vanderbilt. And he's thinking about going into the pastorate. And I told him I thought maybe he should go to law school. Because I thought maybe law school would do a very good job of preparing him to preach. I'm not sure seminaries do it anymore. 
Seminaries don't seem to teach us to reason and to use logic and to have a logical progression in what we say now. I read an article in Wired this last week about PowerPoint. Any of you read that article? One-page article? It's a one-page article on PowerPoint, and it talks about how PowerPoint is, is completely destroying the concept of a logical progression in what you speak to people and is replacing it with pictures. And that even the pictures often are worse than one page of pictures. And so they break up all the statistics on uh, morbidity and different forms of cancer. And they have one graph on one page that gives you all the facts. And then they break it down into PowerPoint presentations on the next page. And they say, so even in the presentation of a basic statistical analysis, PowerPoint's vastly inferior to just having a simple page that you'd hand out that everybody could see at once. Well, part of their, the strength of their illustration is that they narrow down every PowerPoint. I mean, you have one page for this, and then you, have, you can't even see without a magnifying glass the individual PowerPoint presentations on the next page. You get the point. So, of course, it's harder to see what's going on in the PowerPoint because it's miniature, right? Because they have four of them on one page. Well, PowerPoint, again, shows us that in our meetings and in our decision-making, what are we doing? We're moving over to a picture-based, an image-based, instead of a word-based culture. Now, so you might want to argue, but go ahead and read the article. I don't, I don't give a... If, if that's wrong, if PowerPoint is actually a revitalization of logic and, and reason, and, and if all the time we're spending on PowerPoint presentations is making business decisions better, I'm happy. But I think... I think that it reinforces the point that we are moving away from a word-based culture and that in the church we're moving away from word-based worship. Now, next week we're going to have PowerPoint for our hymns. And some of you are going to laugh. But hymns are linear, right? And I don't, I don't think it's going to hurt us, but maybe it is. Nevertheless, do you believe in words? Do you believe in words? Do you believe in logic? Do you believe in reason? In other words, I am pointing to our culture, to you, and to saying, are you willing to be devoted to words as the entry point to the devotions of the church, the teaching of the apostles? Notice it says that those who were added to their number, the souls, had what? Accepted Peter's message. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. You know, today, for someone to join Church of the Good Shepherd, what is required is that they have accepted Peter's message and that they have been baptized. That's what you see at the beginning of this church. We're the same today. You do not have to have accepted every single particular doctrine, every single line and dot and, and word of the New Testament. But the message of salvation through Jesus Christ alone is the irreducible minimum that you have to have believed in order to be a member of Church of the Good Shepherd, or for that matter, any true Christian church. We have this same devotion to the teaching of the apostles. And so at the center of the church is the exception, acceptance of a message of Jesus Christ. It's not that we're all Americans, not that we're all normal Americans, i.e. Christians. It's not that we all drive American cars. It's not that we're all white. It's not that we're all Anglo-Saxon. Um, it's not that we're all uh, colorblind 
or are not colorblind. Um, it's not that we all had Christian parents, but the entry point is that we have believed the message of salvation, which is through Jesus Christ and through his work on the cross. Now, it's not just that that brings us together, but it's that that keeps us together. The first Christian believers, it says, were united. And what were they united around? They were united around the teaching of the apostles. Having believed, their lives changed, and then they were united day by day under the apostles' teaching. Now, today in Bloomington, but across the Western world, there is one line from Scripture that is very, very pertinent to our whole life. And the line is, Pilate saying, what is truth? But I have to give it some sort of uh, inflection that makes it have sense. What is truth? And that is our world. Um, the only truth is the truth that there is no truth. But the Bible shows truth. And the Bible says truth is for all time. The Bible tells us that the truth of Jesus Christ is across all time, across all races, across sex distinctions. There's no place that this truth is not binding. That even as men go into their grave shaking their fist at God, that this truth is absolutely binding on them. So the world's question, what is truth, is answered by the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth that the apostles have given to us in the pages of the New Testament. Now, who were these apostles who passed on this truth of Jesus Christ? Well, the apostles were the twelve disciples, and then Judas hung himself, and then the apostles were added to, and then they had an apostle who was not a part of their number following Jesus in his life. Only one of them, and who was that? That was Paul, because he refers to himself as sort of born out of time. He didn't come at the right time in terms of birth. And so these are the men that surrounded Jesus, or the ones that had Jesus reveal himself directly to him, Paul, on the road to Damascus. And this was what was preached Jesus Christ by these apostles. In 2 Corinthians 4, it says, verse 5, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves is your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Verse 7, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, jars of clay, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. So in other words, they were not devoted to the apostles, but they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, this means that when we read the Apostles' teaching, which the whole New Testament, the primary criteria for canonicity, whether it was added to Scripture and declared to be God's Word written, was what? Apostolic authorship. And so, today, for us to be devoted to the Apostles' teaching is for us to be devoted to the Word of God. All right? And we read in 2 Peter, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, 
For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, think about this. The early church has started. 3,000 believe. They believe the message that Peter preached, and then they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, the apostles are alive, right? But time marches on, and they're going to die. So what happens? Naturally, the oral teaching that they give, the words of their teaching, get written down. And so today we have the apostles' teaching in a way that's different than the early church had. The early church had those men there teaching. We have these men here teaching through the Bible. The books of the New Testament are the apostles' teaching. So it's a slight change. They had it orally. We have it written. All right? And these same apostles are not ashamed to write about themselves that the early church was devoted to them as they taught, to their teaching. In other words, that's pretty bodacious to think of these guys saying, hey, they were devoted to our teaching. And we see this theme in Scripture. If you look at 2 Peter 3.2, turn there with me, please. In 2 Peter 3.2, we read what? And remember, Peter's an apostle. And he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Now, when you read that, you could just skip right over it and you think, yeah, you know, we're, we'll listen to it and we'll accept it of your apostles. But then remember, Peter is an apostle. So Peter, again, is being pretty bodacious in saying, your apostle, in other words, me. Peter's saying, you know, as you devote yourself to what I'm teaching and preaching, what I'm writing here, this is me, I'm an apostle. In other words, these guys were telling people that what they said was directly from God. Now, turn over with me also to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. And you'll see the same thing. But instead of being the Apostle Peter here, it's the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 2, we read a similar thing. And there it says what? Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20. They say, so then... What? You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, this is the church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So here you have Peter and you have Paul, both apostles, both saying that the church is built on them. You have the book of Acts recording that the center of the church was those who had believed the message of an apostle and then those who were continually devoting themselves to the messages of the apostles. Okay, now think about that. Think about that. Isn't it amazing to think of men saying, uh, you know, what we say God says? Would that fit into IU today, huh? What I say God says. And you have to understand, nothing I say has an origin in myself. In fact, no word of Scripture has any origin in the mind of man, but holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
Can you imagine that happening in any lecture hall at IU? It ought to. There ought to be some moment in the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge in the Western world today when somebody gives testimony to the truth of Scripture, transcendent truth. I mean, there ought to be some academic discipline, sometime when somebody ought to utter the central truth of all of history. Now, I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here. You know that. But I'm hoping some of you have the courage to speak of the Lord. Right? Of the Lord. Of the kingship and lordship of the creator of the universe. Ought that not to be pertinent to some discipline somewhere? If nothing else, write it as an Easter egg in the code that you produce. You know, so if somebody figures it out, they can find it. Ask Ben what an Easter egg is. It says what? 19 and 20. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, a few more points, I'm done. The apostles and prophets, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, up until now, we've been talking about the apostles. But you remember I said that in the Old Testament, they all pointed forward to the cross. In the New Testament, they all point back to the cross, right? Now, notice that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Do not go to a church and do not be involved with a group of Christians that's built on the foundation of the apostles. You know, the Marcionites were an early Christian heresy. You know what they did? In their translation of that text, they took out the word prophets. So their church was only built on the apostles. And would you be surprised to know that the Marcionites thought that the Old Testament wasn't really helpful to us? But that's not the truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture shows us that the early church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Because why? Because both the apostles, New Testament, and the prophets, Old Testament, point to the, the center of history, which is Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. And any church, I read that um, the strength of a building is in its angles. Okay? So Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the stone that unites the angle of the Old Testament and the angle of the New Testament, and right there at the center is the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And so any church that says, well, the God of the Old Testament was, was a God that was pretty rigid and pretty intolerant and pretty vindictive and maybe even angry, all right, that's not Christianity. Christianity doesn't have opposition between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Christianity has perfect sympathy between the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the God of Paul and Peter and Mary. All right? And there is no conflict. There can't be conflict because the Holy Spirit is the author of every word of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit is not an idiot. So often we act as if different parts of Scripture disagree with other parts and you think, what is the Holy Spirit, an idiot? And sometimes you even are led to the conclusion that Paul's an idiot. You know, because you remove the agency of the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, and then you've got Paul. And, well, Paul here was trying to head in this direction, but then Paul here got caught up in this direction. And poor, poor, pitiful Paul. Yeah. 
But really, Paul wasn't Jesus. Jesus started a religion of, of gushy feelings and love, and then nasty Paul came along. All right? And what you have is you have everybody thinking that the Holy Spirit is an idiot. Either that or they deny that the Holy Spirit is the author of all Scripture. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says the church is built upon the foundation of those prophets who pointed to Christ and those apostles who looked back to Christ and that Christ is the cornerstone. He's the strength of the angles and that those who affirm the prophets and the apostles and who have all their hope in Jesus Christ are united in a church. They have believed the message and they are one. Okay? So the end of the question is, are you devoted to the prophets? Are you devoted to the apostles? And have you united yourself with the cornerstone? Or are you someone who is a predictable, boring relativist who doesn't believe that any man in history should have such a clear claim of authority, that all of history does not point to Jesus, but that he's a good religious leader to follow? If that's your position about Jesus Christ, let me tell you, he will be the cornerstone that will crush you. A cornerstone is not to be messed with. God has declared this Christ, whom you killed, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Savior. There is no other way of coming before a holy God in this life, let alone at the judgment seat, unless you come having submitted yourself to this Jesus Christ, having claimed Him as your Lord and your Savior, having confessed your sins, having been baptized into the church, and then being devoted to everything that He said through His servants in the Old and New Testament. And that's the Gospel. And so I, in His behalf today, command you in the name of the living God who made you to Place your faith in Him to believe the message that I now today am preaching in behalf of His apostles and prophets. If the Scripture says it, if I've been faithful to Scripture, and if God's own Son poured out His blood on a cross, how could we not give ourselves to Him? And that's the, more, the most wisdom you'll hear all week. Unless you go to the Bible and you read it. That's the wisdom of God. Let's pray.